So welcome to Hall Fights, where today we are going to be looking at the first half of the first season of the Netflix show Defenders. So be forewarned, if you haven't seen the show, we are going to spoil it. We're going to talk about what happens in these episodes. Uh, we encourage you to watch it unless you just don't care about having spoilers. So joining me today are uh, Wit and Joe. Wit and I talked about Jessica Jones and her first season. Joe and I talked about Iron Fist and his first season. And all of us were very excited to, to see the Defenders finally make it to the big screen on Netflix. So guys, let's talk here. Wit, as you started to watch the, the Defenders series, uh, what stood out to you in, as the uh, series started? So uh, I think there were a couple questions going in. I think we talked about it in the last uh, podcast. We really wanted to know how did these characters come together uh, in a meaningful way? Something that, you know, obviously you've got, you know, Jessica, who's uh, got just a small part of New York. She's just a PI. She just follows the cases where they lead. And how do we connect that to a, a larger story? Obviously, we knew the hand was going to be a big part. Uh, how do we connect her to that? So that was kind of the main question I had is how does small world Jessica fit into this larger story? So I was really looking forward to how they were going to answer that question specifically. I think it's a fair uh, thing to think about as much as on some levels, these stories have all been street level. They're also very different in a lot of ways, right? You, you have Jessica Jones and her story, but then you also have Danny Rand in this very cosmic mystic iron fist, uh, background. Joe, as you, as you kind of started the series, what, uh, what stood out to you in the first episode or so? Well, first of all, I mean, just exactly what you just said, Danny, Danny Rand is street level in the sense that, uh, you know, he's, he's not uh, the Avengers flying through space and taking on Galactus and that kind of stuff. Um, but he is also less street level than any of the others. Um, you know, the whole, uh, uh, the whole series that you and I talked about in the, um, the Iron Fist episode of Hall Fights previously, uh, you know, centers around this battle between, um, him as the champion of Kunlun and then the other champions of these other capital cities of heaven that are also in these mystical realms that only appear, you know, they, they only converge all together on earth every like 80 years or something crazy like that. Um, so for me, I coming out of the Netflix series, Iron Fist, I was just kind of interested uh, to see where where the story would kind of converge um, just kind of between those realms of Danny Rand, the citizen of New York who owns a massive corporation and Iron Fist, this sort of mystical warrior who kind of has one foot in the world and one foot not in the world. Um, so to me, it was it was super interesting that they chose to open the whole show with uh, Danny and Colleen kind of globetrotting uh, on the hunt for the hand. Uh, I thought that was an interesting choice, and it it kind of it, it kind of put Danny in a bit more of a central role than I expected. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is one of the things in the first part of this the this series really stood out was. We we wondered how are you going to connect all of these characters, and yet they sort of took Danny and put him at the middle of it by making him be this object of desire by the villains, which we've already talked about are the hand. And I I think it's it's a unique circumstance, in particular when you know on a meta level we know that Iron Fist is regarded to kind of not be the best of any of the Netflix series so far. It was a bold choice for sure. <laughs> And they sort of leaned into it, right? Said, okay, so let's make him, in some ways, uh, 
maybe the most important character for for the show. The thing that struck me as I kind of watched the first couple episodes of this show is that they took their time in in reorienting everybody and helping us all kind of be reminded of, oh yeah, these are who these characters are, and then moving them towards sort of a, an epic coming together moment. So let's talk a little bit about those. So let's talk about Jessica Jones. So wh where do we find her, and like what stood out to you about the the current state of her being at the beginning of Defenders? We find Jessica Jones in this place where I mean somebody comes calling and she doesn't really want to do a job, and it goes back to what we talked about in the first podcast again that she doesn't want to be a hero. She's a woman that has these supernatural abilities, but uh, don't call her a superhero. Uh, and so this this family comes up and says, Hey, I've got a missing relative. Help me find him. And that's her wheelhouse. And that's where we find her. I even love the scene before that, where, um, I think it's before that, where she's, she's kind of doing the walk and talk with Trish. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she even, you know, Trish is talking like, Hey, I've got, I've got publishers who want to write your story. Like that's, you know, that's awesome. And Jessica's just like, I don't, I don't want that. And you get this real sense that like, she she really doesn't want to be famous. She doesn't want to have people rely on her. Um, she doesn't want all that. And um, I and it's it's interesting to me because season one of, of Jessica Jones is so much about um, kind of the meta narrative. There is about abuse and surviving abuse and and what it's like to be a survivor. Sure. And so I just thought that was. Um, I thought that was a good nod to kind of say like, look, this is where this character is coming from. And it's okay to be a survivor and not have that be your identity. Like, it's okay to, to go, yes, I survived this horrible thing. And that still doesn't define me. Like, I'm still am me, just me. That's all, you know? Yeah, and she definitely has that attitude where just me is enough. Mm -hmm. She doesn't, she, you get the sense from her that you just, you know, most people have this drive to be, you know, we're always striving for more or something better or whatever. And she's just comfortable in her own skin. And, you know, that seems to be the place where Jessica's at. But I, I don't know how much of that is uh, her being comfortable or her just being like still dealing with the past. I mean, I think there's still part of her abuse story that's driving her to not push forward because there there's uncomfortableness there yeah um but again i think we find all four of these characters when we can dig into it they're they're all in kind of this place like luke they all come together doing the same thing they've always done they come together with luke helping a kid in harlem with jessica uh on the hunt for a case with you know all these danny on the hunt of the hand like we find these characters in the same places and i thought that was really smart uh i think that was the biggest critique we read of the early reviews was that the first couple episodes were slow um, but I, I just didn't feel that at all. I thought the story moved in a really nice pace yeah. to bring them together for ultimately a great hall fight. Sure. Well, and, and I think one of the things you, you, you kind of talked about, so in Jessica's case, her story is about autonomy and she, she is choosing not to be the superhero. She's, she's choosing to say, yeah, I got these powers, but that doesn't make me into something that I'm not, which I think is interesting. And, and she is a little bit in like a pause mode. Right. Her we get the feeling like there's probably been some time since the end of her season, but like she hasn't grown or advanced very far as a character. Whereas within we get to look at Luke Cage and we definitely see that Luke has um, we get to see him being released from prison. Um, we get the little crossover where Foggy Nelson is his uh, attorney who's helped get him out. Um, and get the nice little joke about, and you let them call you that, <laughs> which I liked. And, uh, and then he goes back to, like you guys said, back to Harlem, back to Claire, who's been waiting for him. Um, they have a rather energetic reunion. 
And um, what do you mean, Jason? What are you talking about? <laughs> I guess he was in prison a while. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, and then they, uh, and then he he kind of does what he's going to do, which is he's going to help people. And I kind of get sucked into that. Um, I, I liked what they did with Luke. Um, it would have been very easy for him to have come out of prison and been like, I'm just going to handle me and I'm just going to take care of me. But he's not that. And Claire knows he's not that. And sort of right away, they they embrace that he's going to go in this other direction. And I, I, have a que- I have a quick question just for you guys. Again, I'm not from the comic book world. Uh, going back through Jessica Jones and rewatching that, we first meet Luke in a bar handling his business, not wanting to be a hero in the same way that Jessica's in that mode. Something switches. He he obviously now sees himself as a guy that can do good. And, and is that a thing from the comics where there's a switch that happens between just me getting mine and now saving Harlem? Or is that something they just created for the character for the series? Yeah, no. So, so that's a great question. So from the comic books, um, going back to his earliest part, he, he is very much portrayed as... Um, a reluctant Robin Hood. How about that? In that, okay, he is. Um, he's got these powers, but he's also trying very hard to figure out like how do I cash in on them. So uh, most of uh, his backstory in the comics is he and Iron Fist are par- partnered up in what's called the Heroes for Hire, and they kind of would take on cases, and then you know eventually it becomes bigger deal, and they wind up you know more times than not saying hey don't you don't have to pay us that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so there is a little bit of that. I think too, in Netflix world, he's laying low in part because he doesn't want to go back to jail. Right. He, yeah. When we first see him in that series, he is, a, uh, you know, he's on the run and, and, um, and I could think we can take that from Jessica Jones is showing up there as well. Like he's laying low because he doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to get caught. And then I think you could say in the Luke Cage series, uh, what happens in the barber shop sort of triggers him as I have to do more, you know, I've been given these gifts. So I, I think that's a great call out because that definitely shows up in this series over the course of the whole season of, you know, Luke and, and what he thinks and believes kind of being a core part of what pulls this team together. And I, I think they did a better job with that, with Luke than with anybody else. Um, like in, in terms of these characters at the start of the defenders being connected to where they were, um, you know, Matt, uh, Murdoch, you know, the end daredevil season two and, and, um, Nelson and Murdoch is, is no more. And so there's, there's, you're, you're kind of not clear exactly what Matt's going to do. You know, that foggy's got this big high power job now. Um, you know, where Jessica's at, at the end of, of, uh, her first season, um, uh, iron fist to me was the one that was least connected, to, to like where that season ended for for it to start with him and Colleen globetrotting, trying to find the hand. I was kind of like, wait, w- what did I miss at the end of Iron Fist that led to this? But Luke is the one that super interested me because um, they're not really, they don't really say how long he had to go back to prison. Right. Uh, but to me, like the most telling thing in that whole sequence where he's being released is is when he's talking with Foggy. And Foggy says, hey, it's a new start. And he says, I'm not starting over, Mr. Nelson. I'm moving forward. And that was just like such a tight connection with the whole motif of his first season of like forward always, you know, um, and, and just that whole that whole mantra from Pop. 
And uh, so that, like that to me, you know, presumably, I, I don't know how long you typically go back to prison for, for escaping from prison. <laughs> but, you know, however long he was there, that stayed at the forefront of his mind. And Foggy even mentions how he stayed out of trouble. You know, he did a whole prison stint without throwing a punch. And so, um, yeah, so like that, that to me was just a, a very well written and I think really set the tone for who Luke was going to be in The Defenders. Well, I think it grounded the rest of them, too, because for me, watching the series, I think we'd all had debates about like kind of the personality traits these four characters were going to take on. And Luke became, in a way, the moral compass. I know we've seen that with Daredevil in the past and his faith and his his faith dictating how he handled certain situations. But for Luke in this place, uh, in this series specifically, he becomes the one that is kind of the voice of reason and the voice of the moral center sure which is a, a strange place to find him but i think it goes back to what you talk about in that that relationship he has with pop and realizing i, I can save the city now he, he sees himself as a hero for maybe the first time and probably out of all four of them he sees himself as a hero daredevil would say he's a vigilante jessica jones would say she's just a pi and iron fist would just say he's a, a guardian i don't really know <laughs> but but luke would say I, I i'm a hero to these people and that's what i'm gonna be and i think that changes the dynamic yeah and and i think it um it, it it does help propel and move the story forward uh, because the rest of them kind of are in a, a state of, of being stuck, right? Jessica, we've talked about, hasn't really moved forward much. You've got Matt Murdock trying not to be Daredevil, but at the same time, like, he's conflicted about it, but he's still sort of stuck and this is where he's at. And, and obviously, if you've seen season two of Daredevil, there are reasons. Um, and then you wind up we kind of get this quick gloss over of Iron Fist and Danny and Colleen have, you know, at one point they, they drop the exposition bomb. That's just a list of all the places they've been. Yeah. That, that I just was like, Oh yeah. Okay. We get it. You're trying to tell us this has been going on a while. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting. And then to, to sort of bring them all back together slowly, uh, I think was a smart use of, you know, the first quarter of a eight episode season. So one of the things we, you know, we talked about in almost all the podcasts so far, the hall fights is all of them have been too long. So this one is eight episodes. And I think it's, you know, without spoiling it, I think it benefits from that. I think it made them be a little bit more focused. There's still some places where you wish they'd edited a little bit, but I thought it was really interesting um, to see. So, um, so basically, we, we discover at the end of episode one, um, New York is under attack. This quote unquote earthquake happens. We kind of see everybody react, um, the heroes, but also kind of all their sidekicks and, you know, supporters are all dealing with that. And then we get, um, you know, Jessica Jones trying to, to, uh, to take on um, this case. And that sort of propels us into episode two. Uh, episodes one and two were by the same director. And I think if you go back and rewatch them, that shows up pretty well. I think one person, uh, SJ Clarkson is the director and she does a great job of, I think, taking those two things and tying them together. Can I ask a question really about the earthquake? Yeah, sure. Uh, at the end of episode one, what the heck was that? Because my, my first, uh, the, the first time, you know, watching it, I thought, oh, well, this is, this is black sky waking up right because you know at the end of daredevil season two you've got Electra going into the 
you know, the, the sarcophagus or whatever it is, um, to kind of, to kind of await resurrection. Um, and then it hit me, well, wait a second. No, I'm pretty sure that was Electra that killed the guy that Danny and Colleen were trying to find. So that probably wasn't Electra waking up. Like what was that? Yeah. So, so my guess is, um, they, they made it to the point where they could, uh, so so later in the season we learned that they've made this uh inroads to a point where they're trying to dig under the city to find something and they hit a barrier they can't get through. My guess is it was them trying to blast through the barrier. And um and not being able to and because of that it sort of shook the whole city cuz they probably used way more explosives and that kind of thing. Interesting. My answer is that it's one of the unexplained things of the show. And one of the weaknesses of the show, I think, is that I never, and this is, I mean, not really a spoiler so much as it is just on the whole season, I I don't get the threat to the city. Yeah. It just never felt like the city was really in the massive amount of danger that I thought it was supposed to be in. It is kind of nebulous. Well, and it, it does, it, it sort of is, it, it does serve the purpose of being this this thing that happens that we can then look at four different people's perspective on. Yeah. You know, and then it starts to move things forward. I, I don't think it's the greatest ending to the episode one, but I think it does the job that they're hoping it would, which is we get everybody back in New York. We get everybody sort of pointed and thinking something's messed up and then start to dig in a little bit. So, um, cause then in episode two, we do sort of hear for the first time about this mystical wall that they have to, to somehow get through. And, uh, and that's where we get reintroduced to uh, the stick. So let's talk a little bit about stick. Um, as you guys think about that character, what stands out to you, um, especially in his involvement in the Defenders? I think they've done a really good job with stick over the course of the couple of uh, seasons that he's been in with Daredevil and now Defenders. Uh, just being this ambiguous, you don't know if you like him, you kind of don't trust him, but ultimately you listen to him. At certain times, yeah, there's this weird thing that happens with Stick where you know he's old and you know he's wise, you know he's been around the block a few times, and so you trust that judgment. But at the end of the day, like you don't know whose side he's on, and at any moment, you know, you just you just don't know. He's a, he's a loose cannon, and so I think bringing him back here, uh, connecting Matt Murdock to the group in a way where Matt Murdock kind of ends up on the outside a little bit of this group because of his involvement with stick. I think that's a smart choice. It gets us uh, into a place where we can ask bigger questions of, of Danny and the hand and all these things. Uh, But ultimately it just, it leaves you uneasy in your seat. Like at what moment is this going to go bad? Yeah. Stick stick is an interesting one to me um, in, in the scene where they introduce him in the defenders. Um, He's, he's approached, he's in captivity um, and he's kind of approached by um, the character Alexandra, um, uh, played by Sigourney Weaver, and and she's sort of she's talking to him as if they've known each other for a very long time, and uh, and she kind of refers. I think at one point she calls him old friend, which kind of made me wonder, like, okay, wait a second. I'm pretty sure she's the villain in this show so far. Right. Yeah. She she had had a conversation with Madame Gao, I think, before that. So it, it, you you kind of know what's up with Gao at this point, um, and um, so you're like, okay, pretty sure she's the villain, and she's talking to Stick. She called him old friend. Did he used to be on whatever side she's on, and then he and he changed? Like she uh, in a, in a previous scene, um, kind of insinuated that she knew the composer Brahms, 
um, who was a contemporary of Beethoven, kind of insinuated that she knew him personally. Yeah. So you're like, wait a second, how old is she? And if Stick is old friend. Well, she had that line in the Asian restaurant too, where she said that's better than Constantinople. And he's like, oh, you mean Istanbul? She's like, mm, <laughs> nope. So so it's like, okay, so she's she's super old apparently, and she's calling Stick old friend. Like, how old is Stick? Like, I've always just kind of seen Stick as this old guy who. Um, you know, if I had to peg him with an age, like maybe he's in his early seventies, I don't know. Um, but now I'm wondering like, is he hundreds of years old? Like what's going on there? Which, which adds a new dimension to his character. Like, is there something even more mystical about stick than just the fact that he's blind and fights better than just about anybody else? Well, and we do see, so stick becomes this way to draw two characters together. So for whatever reason, he seems to know about Kumlun and uh, Iron Fist and that kind of scenario. He's already, we know, got a back history with Matt Murdock and Daredevil. And then on top of it, you you add in the what we see happen in episode three, which is uh, the hand uh, gets the body of Elektra and uh, uses the last of kind of their mojo to resurrect her um, and turn her into a weapon that they then begin to call the Black Sky. And I, I think it's an interesting um, approach that they take there. Uh, it sets up. I, it's it's odd from the standpoint of I don't understand um, what and how we're supposed to take that Electra's the super bad, except that everybody sort of just says she is. I mean, later some things happen that shows that with that. But at this point in the narrative. Um, we see her kind of be resurrected, you know, either unlock the fighting that's deep in her or relearn to fight. And then she kind of, we then see her in several fights moving forward. Uh, what did you guys think? Uh, so, so one of the things people have said for a long time about the Marvel cinematic universe, and maybe even a little bit the Netflix universe is they don't seem to have the ability to create outstanding villains for the most part. And, and I think if you're going to talk about a weakness in this show, that that may be a fair thing to hang around the neck of the defenders. What do you guys think? I, I definitely agree that that is the case with the movies. Um, and, and the issue is that with the exception of Loki, there hasn't been a really good villain who has survived the movie. Um, like who, who's played a meaningful role. There's, there's Thanos. I mean, there's, you know, there's stuff coming up with him. Um, and so maybe Thanos will finally be the villain in the Marvel movies that everybody's been waiting right. for. Um, but the problem is in a two, two and a half hour movie, there's only so you've got to do exposition on the main characters, the heroes. And so that just doesn't leave you much time to really begin to care about the villains. And then the villain dies. Um, or in the case of somebody like Crossbones, um, dies super early in in uh, Captain America: Civil War, uh, and so there's just not the opportunity to to really get to know those those villains. Um, I feel like the the uh, Netflix TV shows have largely been different, um, with the exception of the Purple Man in uh, you know Kilgrave in the uh, season one of Jessica Jones. Um, I don't think any of the villains have have died. Um, they've all sort of carried over. And to some extent, I think that's been a really good thing. Like I, I'm sure we'll probably see more of, yeah. uh, of Kingpin. 
Um, and that's exciting to me because I think Vincent D'Onofrio is amazing in that role. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, this is the third series, I think, that we've seen Madame Gao. Um, so, like, there's there's a familiarity there. But every every season of a show that she's been in, you've learned a little more about her. You've seen her a little more in action. And, um, uh, and, and I think that's been good. The, um, the other side of that is, um, especially early on in the defenders, um, it's sort of unclear what the relationship is between the people that were sort of slowly introduced to as like, okay, the, these are the people that, are, that the defenders are going to be up against, um, and so there's a little bit of an of an aesthetic to me, especially with the it's kind of the way they portray Sigourney Weaver's character, where she's almost always in white. That like it almost strikes me as like a Bond villain, um, like caricature that way. Yeah. And and so like if she is, uh, you know, if she's if she's Blofeld, then Electra kind of has to be like odd job or like one of the other henchmen, which which you know, kind of without thinking about it, you, you come to go, you, you sure, come yeah. to think along those same lines where, you know, like there's the villain and the henchman. And at some point there's going to be a climactic showdown with the henchman before the, you know, the main villain and all this. And I, at least that's where my mind went. And that, and I sort of had those same thoughts where you're, you're saying you know, what you were saying about like, just it's, it's sort of unclear, like, Number one, who we should care about is the villain. Number two, why we should care about and just the relationship between the different things that they've kind of set in motion. Well, and, and you, it's hard in the early part of the season. They they set Electra up as a, almost a sympathetic character. Like she's resurrected, obviously, in some ways against her will. Um, they seem, you know, they, they definitely lean into she's not supposed to remember stuff, but she does to some degree. Uh, especially when we get to uh, episode three. So episode three kind of climaxes with, uh, for different reasons, everybody winds up in the same place. Uh, Jessica Jones is investigating this guy, architect, who seemed like a good guy, but then winds up in her office and um, takes his own life when uh, the black sky shows up to attack. Um, Danny Rand figures out through uh, forensic accounting, which I thought was an odd choice um, <laughs> that the hand is using this Midland circle, some sort of front business. So he decides to go corporate and go confront their board. Um, Luke Cage winds up there because he figures out this guy that he was trying to help um, who since has been arrested. And, and I think at this point uh, has died in prison uh, goes to investigate that. Um, and then, um, Matt Murdock was there because he was with Jessica Jones at the time she was released uh, because Foggy had basically sent him in to be her attorney. So anyway, you wind up with all of them together and you get this kind of epic hall fight um, that happens. I, I appreciated very much that in episode three, they said, you know what we're known for? Hall fights. So let's make sure we stick one in here, right here. <laughs> and, I, and I thought they did a pretty nice job. So one of the things about this team is you you kind of break into two sides. Um, you have Daredevil and Iron Fist, who are these martial artists. And obviously Iron Fist has more than that, too. And then you kind of have uh, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage as the two sort of brute force impact. I, I thought it was really fun to watch 
they had spent some time and energy to put together that fight and think about ways that, you know, they could play off of each other. So you see bulletproof loot guarding Danny at one point. You see, you know, all these different kind of things happen. So let's talk for just a few minutes uh, about the the fight itself. Anything stand out to you guys? I thought that um, that fight was... I it it was everything I hoped it would be. I think is the best way to say it. For like for the first time, the four of them are all sort of fighting together. Um, there's there's a certain amount of chemistry that um, that's not there yet. You know, there's there's a couple of moments where they're kind of stepping over each other, and and there's some moments where they do sort of team up in some ways, like you were talking about. But um, you know, Marvel teams um kind of have a a sort of a storied history i feel like of of like using their powers in conjunction with one another um to to defeat bad guys and all that stuff i I, the one that's coming to mind right now is colossus and wolverine captain american iron man do that too a lot in the movies and i know that comes from the comics when he shoots the things into his shield and i know that's a big deal yeah yeah and so you you don't really see that kind of stuff in the first fight i i if memory serves you you do kind of see that a little bit more later on. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a, a perfectly serviceable hall fight. It was, um, uh, you know, it's in episode three, so it's not going to be like the biggest, baddest fight of the year. But uh, but it was it was good for what it was. I think it was great because of the timing. Again, we talked about how critics have said the show was too slow. And I love that they just went in hard on the first really big fight scene in episode three. You got everybody. You had everybody there. It was all together. Uh, I thought that was smart because it really brings you into the story and really makes you kind of care about these people together. But like Joe says, uh, it is great to see them not as a team yet. And really, they don't know anything about each other. And, you know, at, at the beginning of it, they're all just as surprised as the others to see each other. Luke and Jessica come to mind. He doesn't understand why she's there at all, but he's totally okay that she can throw a punch at the guy next to him. So mm-hmm. it was cool to see them come together in that way. Um, I I think for me, again, it goes back to the first question you asked a minute ago about, about the villains of the story. And, and yeah, I'm excited that they're in there fighting and I'm excited that they're all together, but there just wasn't fear for me, the audience of like these, these people are scary and demand all four of these people in the room. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think this is the weakest area of the show for me is that, and, and again, I'm coming, you know, my favorite so far of the Netflix series has been Jessica Jones, who had, in my opinion, this, the best villain, uh, with Kingpin as a close second, in my opinion, but, yes. um, Kilgrave was just so darn scary to come into this season and to, and to see, uh, the hand be the hand, but like at no point do I, the viewer far away from New York feel at any, in any jeopardy at all. Um, so yeah, there, there's a great fight scene, but I'm not really sure what they're fighting for yet. Um, and, and I think they, they felt that too. They, they certainly are just kind of fighting to stay alive, not fighting for a purpose. And as the show progresses, they're given a purpose and, and given a, a call to like join together and do something bigger. But I, I appreciate that they're not there yet and they don't have it together yet. And then we wind up in like episode four, which sort of serves as the, we've had the cool hall fight moment. Now let's get everybody together in a room. And then stick shows up and basically does an exposition dump. <laughs> <laughs> like he walks in and goes, I'm going to explain to everybody what's happening. And it, it almost is like he winks at the audience when he does it, because I, for one was sort of like, all right, I, I get, they were all there, but like, I'm not sure what's going on. And then he sort of lays out this history of the hand, 
uh, how they tie into Kunlun, how they've all sort of had training there and then ran away from it. Uh, we see a little bit of that also through some of the encounters that Alexandra has with the other fingers of the hand, they call them. And uh, I, I thought um, episode four is interesting in that you, you kind of do have that moment where they're all in this Chinese restaurant that Danny has bought out with his black uh, <laughs> credit card. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny. Like, I'll just throw money at it. That that's better than a fist. <laughs> and then, but it's so it's so great for Danny because what he wouldn't know what else to do. Right. I mean, he literally knows how to punch things and have money, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. And and I like the idea that like he and Luke sort of come together around dumplings. Like, yeah, <laughs> like all right, I can get down with this. Let's let's eat. And um, but it, it is sort of like episode four is sort of setting up everything that comes after it, and. It, and Stick comes in and he lays out that history and you start to realize and then you start to know too, like they set up the big idea that like they want Iron Fist, you know, they, they want him alive. He plays an important role in their plan, that that whole setup. And then um, and you kind of get a little bit of a fight there. And then Jessica leaves for a while, kind of goes, I'm out. I'm not doing this like you guys do whatever. And then episode four closes with her returning, which I thought was a really cool pivot point because it sort of had her go okay maybe i am in maybe i i don't understand all this and this definitely is some crazy talk compared to my world but like i i, I gotta do what i think is right and she sort of shows back up for that there's a line in the first season of jessica jones where she talks about her biggest weakness is that occasionally she gives a yeah. damn and uh that that's the episode where like you get that occasionally moment pop out of her and and she just yep. she realizes that she does in fact give a damn in this moment and so she she shows up and and i i love that moment i think from there you know there, we'll talk later about the rest of the season but i i really appreciated episode 4s uh at times heavy handed but it it sort of did work to make you get a little bit more invested in who are these villains? You know, why should we care? And I think push the plot further along. Here's a question for you, Jason. Here, watching these four defenders, knowing we're going to get into the plots and and the the villains really uh, in the next section. Who are your favorite defenders to see on screen together? Yeah. So so part of this comes from my history in the comics, right? Like Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Uh, I first came to both of those characters when they were together. They were partners, and. Uh, and so to see the two of them together in that way, I really loved that that dynamic. And I think it definitely played in like the fanboy part of me to see them in that first hall fight of Danny ducking behind the bulletproof Luke and then coming out swinging. I am um, I enjoyed that a, a lot. I am um, I also think, and this is going to be an interesting thing to talk about later. Uh, there's a Jessica Jones Luke Cage dynamic that's really awesome. Yeah, and um. And, and, and to see how they play that out, we we kind of theorized, Yeah, are they going to lean into what the comics have happened or are they going to take it a different direction? But I, I'm, I'm excited to see that. Uh, Daredevil, honestly, is sort of the odd man out for me. Um, not that I dislike him, but he just doesn't necessarily tie into any of these characters in a way that stands out to me and and I would even say this so this would be my bold statement if Electra isn't in this show I don't know why Daredevil's here Oof. Uh, not, not that I like dislike the character but he doesn't have the partnership he doesn't have the connection he doesn't Electra being here makes him important and makes him engaged but uh 
yeah, at, at this point in the season, I don't, I don't know otherwise how it feels. So feel free to push back against that. Well, it, it also makes you wonder, like, if if Daredevil weren't involved, would Stick be involved? Right. And then the whole like right. like exposition bomb in in episode four, like, like how much would Stick really be a part of this? Because he, at least in my mind, is super connected with Daredevil and Elektra. And so to to find out you know, during his exposition that there's also a connection to to Danny as the Iron Fist, um, you know, I, I'm not enough of a comic reader to know if that's part of the Marvel canon or not. I mean, of course it is now, but um, yeah. So I I had no idea like Stick would know anything about Iron Fist. It's like that was news to me. I think that goes the other way. Stick would be involved, but Matt Murdock could still be gone because, I mean, literally the was it season one of daredevil season two where stick comes out and says, I'm part of this group that's fighting the hand, right? You got to be a part or, or get out and like literally tries to force daredevil onto his side. And, and it doesn't happen. Daredevil, daredevil stays in hell's kitchen. And so, you know, sticks here to fight the hand, fight the hand all day. That's all he does uh, with or without daredevil, you know? Um, that's true. So I think, I think he has to be around cause that's like, as part of the chase, that's gotta be his job is just fight the hand wherever the hand shows. Well, up. and then as the season goes on, like stick becomes the extremist. Like, yeah. As always. Um, as always. Yeah. So I, I think there, there's something to that to, to, to think on. I, it just, and like I said, it's not that I, I don't like the character of daredevil. It just feels like at this point in the season, he's the least integrated. And if a lecture wasn't in it, then I think, I would worry about what happens from this point forward. Now we'll talk about the rest later, but um, yeah, I would agree. I think I would agree with you, but also she was in it, which makes him so integral to the plot that he had to be there. And I think that's okay. Like, I don't, yeah, I, I agree with you that if she's not there, he doesn't really need to be there, but like she was there. So he needed to be. And, and in a, I mean, he shows up in a big way because of it. I mean, ultimately, you know, in the season we see that, I mean, that, that daredevil is, a huge part of this team bigger than, than maybe we even thought to begin with. I knew, um, obviously when we knew the hand was going to be a thing. We knew Dare- iron fist was going to be huge. Um, but, but yeah, I, you know, um, I, I didn't expect, uh, daredevil to be so, so vital. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about, they've made iron fist so important, right? Like they elevated him to, you know, the thing everybody wants, the person everybody's after, which I, I thought was a bold choice for sure. Especially for comedic humor. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, the balance between action, violence, you know, comedy. What uh, what stood out to you guys? I I sort of expected more wisecracking, like in a dark way from Jessica. Um, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like she just she was more serious than I expected. I I feel like a lot of her. Um, persona in season one of her show was was and of course it's it's kind of laughing off this darkness that she's living with um but uh yeah I, I, I didn't see as much of that as i expected um and i didn't see as much of like i i sort of expected danny to be like the the light comedy to balance jessica's dark comedy and I didn't get as much of that from either one as I thought. There were there were a couple of moments that I kind of chuckled at the the first fight between. Um, uh, it, it's the first time that Luke and Danny meet, where um, you know Luke is is trying to save this uh, 
this young man in Harlem from from throwing his life away and ending up in prison or, or worse. And Danny's just trying to track down the hand. And so he's, you know, he's got this lead and they end up fighting in an alley and Danny doesn't know anything about Luke. And so he's, he's trying to go through all yeah. of his martial arts stuff. <laughs> and it's like, it's just kind of funny watching my, my favorite moment, the favorite two moments. There's one where Danny tries to sweep the leg he goes down to the ground and sweeps the leg and luke just kind of looks at him uh and then there's another one where luke like gets him on the ground and danny does some fancy martial arts stuff and and tries to like i forget if it's an elbow or a backhand uh to the side of luke's head and he just luke just like rolls his eyes yeah you know and it's like that to me was I got, I I literally laughed. I mean, it was, it was funny. Well, so it's funny because you mentioned that, you know, you expected Danny to be the light humor. And in my opinion, he is the humor of the show, but it's at his expense and not at his initiative. Uh, Because most of the humor from the show for me is Luke making fun of him or Jessica making fun of him or even, even Daredevil making fun of him. Like everybody's picking on, on Iron Fist in this show. And I, like as the guy that's just seen the series, I I have to wonder if it's because it's kind of the way the world picked on the shows, and everybody picked on Iron Fist for being too serious, and he shows up and he's super serious, and everybody in the show is kind of like, dude, calm down, like you're way out there. That could be like a nice little nod to the to the fact that that's yeah that that's the way all those shows were reviewed. Well, and I think too it it goes back to what we talked about in the Iron Fist episode. If he's this outsider, right? He, he doesn't. He doesn't fit in. I mean, even the at this point, the part of the world he's been in, he's just been in this fight with the hand almost since he came back from Kunlun, and so you know he's hyper focused and he doesn't he doesn't see the the bigger picture. I, we'll talk some more about this in the next episode, but they do some interesting stuff with Luke and uh, Danny in terms of kind of societal issues. You know, here's a Luke. Uh, you get that moment in the dojo where. Luke and him are, are kind of having a discussion about what's the best and right thing to do, you know, cause they wound up in this fight. Um, and Claire brings them together. She, she recognizes who they both are. Um, there's gotta be a like six degrees of Claire temple game out there <laughs> in this world um, universe. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So she, she pulls them all together and they have a, I thought a pretty honest and open discussion of like L- Luke laying out, Hey, it's not as easy as that. Like, mm-hmm. it's not as simple as that. This this kid isn't inherently evil. He's just trying to work a job, you know, right. take care of his mom. And and Danny kind of having to deal with that and look at that. What what did you guys think? Did did that feel genuine to you? Did you did it feel heavy handed? I thought it felt like an appropriate way to continue that conversation from Luke Cage season one. Um, I I think the the brilliance of Luke Cage was that the partly just the moment the the historical the social moment that we're in right now it was such a powerful thing um to see a black man in a hoodie who was bulletproof yeah uh, and just just that image and and it was powerful to me as a as a white man in america i i can only imagine um you know just what what that would mean to someone uh, who, who's not white you know, who, who might live with a regular sort of fear, um, about, you know, being, being harassed or, or worse just because of skin color or because of the way they're dressed or whatever. And so, um, to me, it felt like a, like a logical and appropriate continuation of that conversation. I, I liked that, uh, Luke at one point, um, talked about privilege, you know, and, and he said, 
um, I, I've, I forget his exact wording, but he said something to Danny along the lines of, even before you got the glowing fist, you had power. Yeah. Um, and he, and he just talked about, you know, your, your power was your money. Like you were born into a world where you had things and you had opportunities that, that this, you know, this boy that you were about to beat down in an alley never had, never had a chance to have. And, um, so I, I thought personally it was, it was appropriate and, um, and I, I loved it. That that was one of my favorite kind of kind of moments between the two of them, aside from the sort of comical, you know, stuff, was the fact that like in the midst of all that, okay, let's have a let's have a, a socially meaningful discussion. Well, what's amazing too in the series is not only that they have the discussion in I think a good way, but that it would have been very simple for Danny to just have said, Oh, whatever, like I grew up in a my my parents died. I've had it tough. Like you don't know my life, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Like yep. you could have easily just said, like my parents died in a plane crash, and I was raised by monks and getting beat up and tortured every day. Like I don't know anything about privilege. But instead of going that route with the character, the writers had Danny say, "You know what? Maybe Luke's right." Yeah, and he actually listened to him and say, "Like you know what? Like I probably should reevaluate who I'm punching with this glowing fist of death." Yeah, and uh, maybe take context into consideration and. And, and again, this goes back to Luke being the moral compass for this group. In that moment, you really see that even though Danny has these powers and abilities, uh, it's Luke the, as the one that kind of grounds him and says, reminds him that we live in a real world with real people with real consequences. Um, and, that, and that people are complex, that they're not, you know, sure. like Danny lives in this world where you're the hand or you're not. Yeah. So like to, to go to, to, to step into a world where, well, you're not the hand, but you're working for the hand, but you don't know you're working for the hand. And maybe sure. you wouldn't work for the hand if you knew it was them, but you're just trying to pay bills. You're just trying yeah. to support your family. Like just that, that complexity I think is, is something that, I mean, obviously our culture is much more prone to black and white, blue and red. Um, you know, these, these dichotomies that we set up when nobody is a one dimensional person. And I, and I think that it, it really does humanize, um, the struggle they're going through, you know, I, I, it helps. I think it helps Danny gain perspective. It helps clarify, you know, what Luke sees his role as, you know, um, it's not just that he's strong and bulletproof. It's also like he, he wants the world to understand where he comes from. And I, and I think that that is a just as important and powerful message. And and I didn't think it was overly heavy handed. I mean, it would have been different if it's 30 minutes of an episode, but I thought it was a frank conversation. And I think it was honest and that it took Danny a little while to think about it before he was like, you know what, maybe there, there's some validity to what he's saying you know, could I do this differently? And, and honestly, as a heroes for hire fan, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that shows up in the future, you know, in, in some of the, the later things that, that these, these characters may do together. Uh, so all in all, um, we've talked sort of about the first four episodes here, defenders, G- give me a, a one to 10 grade. How did you feel about the first half of the season? Uh, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, one to 10 grade. I'm going to give a solid eight to the first four. I thought the first four were very solid. I had minor problems. Um, I mean, like very quickly, like I didn't really get Colleen's speech to uh, to Danny when they're in the sewers of, is it Cambodia where they were? Where Yeah. At the very beginning. Yeah. Cambodia. Yeah. When she's like, we got to go back to New York and there's others there. And 
like I was just like, what the heck are you talking about? Like you've apparently been fighting this war for months. Like now you think about the other people. Like I didn't other, obviously I'm sitting here meditating like, Oh, okay. She's talking about the defenders, but like, I just didn't get where that line came from. There are like minor quibbles like that, but I really sure. enjoyed the pacing. I really enjoyed, I, I mean, listen, when they debut Alexandra for the first time in the first four seasons and they have like, Madame Gao approach her as someone of power like that moment is a little intense because you've seen Madame Gao in several seasons be this really uh, shady intimidating figure and for her to be scared of somebody meant that I should be scared of somebody and so I thought the, yeah. all those things were very good I thought yeah. the hall fight is in that first four episodes so I, I'm going to give it a solid 8 out of 10. Alright Joe how about you? Uh, I will up it to a soft 9 uh, and for, for many of the same reasons that Wit was talking about um, Gao, especially, you know, she, in all the seasons where we've seen her, she's sort of been apart. She's been so, like somewhat removed, like even in the first season of Daredevil, where she's part of this, you know, criminal conglomeration that's sort of under Wilson Fisk, you kind of get the impression that she's not really under Wilson Fisk, but she just wants him to think that she is. And so like, I mean, just like Wit said, to have this moment, um, where she, is clearly deferential to, and it's, and it's not just acting, right? It's not just her um, manipulating, but she's actually deferential to someone else that she seems to answer to in some way um, was, was that first inkling of like, Oh man, like Alexandra is, she's something like, I'm not sure what yet, but she's something. Yeah. Uh, And then, yeah. And then all the, you know, the, the character developments, I, I think the, um, you know, the, the character who developed the least to me is Iron Fist, but I think that's totally fitting with his character. He's the youngest. He's got the least amount of experience with this sort of thing that they're doing together. Um, you know, he seems to learn the slowest. Yeah, he seems to be the most impulsive, the, um, you know, just all the things you would expect out of, you know, uh, somebody in their, I'm assuming probably early 20s. Um, hanging out with a bunch of people who seem to be in their early to mid thirties, you know, um, he's sort of the oddball that way, but yeah, the the pacing to me was great. Um, the dialogue in the first half, I, I don't want to spoil anything for the second half, but I think it's stronger in the first half. (laughs) Um, there's, there's some of those moments like, um, you know, the moments between Luke and Danny, um, the moments between, um, Jessica and Matt, where, you know, Matt walks in and, and it's this, you know, it's like straight out of the comics of like, this is over. Don't say anymore. I'm here. I'm your lawyer. And those are just nice moments to me. So I, I would give it a, a good hard eight, soft nine. Yeah, I, I probably am leaning more towards the eight. I think the first two episodes do hard work that's probably underappreciated in setting up everybody, helping us understand where everybody's at in a character moment, and then kind of moving everybody towards the the pickup that happens in, in episode three moving forward. I am I I did sort of struggle with the villain, honestly. It, it, I think it um it just is gonna be a, an issue, you know, moving forward, even with him um sort of setting up Alexandra as someone that we should be scared of and, and of her power. Uh it's still um I don't know. It still didn't quite do it for me, but I, I did enjoy the moments where they come together and you start to see that emotion. And it made me excited for the, the back half of the season, which we'll talk about next time on Hall Fight. So 
again, uh, we've just been talking about the first four episodes of The Defenders on Netflix and uh, what we thought of this series of this uh, Marvel Universe show. Uh, joining me today were Wit and Joe. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you, Jason. Thanks. Thanks.